Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their advice. If you would like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. I'm asked many questions about the autistic community, but one of the most common questions that I'm asked is, what is a good job for autistic people? My answer surprises some as I say it could be any job because autistics work and thrive in basically any job that exists. On this episode of Autism Stories, I talked to Charlie Hart about her experience working in human resources and advice she gives to others that may be considering this as a career. We hope you enjoyed today's conversation. Charlie, thanks for joining me today. Thank you, Doug. It's a pleasure to meet you. Absolutely. Wanted to start out and learn where does your story in the autistic community begin? Okay. When I was growing up, my brother was autistic, although he had a lot of different difficulties and wasn't actually diagnosed till he was about 10. He had learning difficulties and autism and ADHD. Went to a a number of different special schools. Really struggled to find the right kind of slot for him. So that was, to me, that was what autism looked like. It was all I knew about it. So I went through life then, through my childhood, being a bit quirky and different, a bit of a weird kid, but not actually knowing, no frame of reference that that also could be autism. So... Basically, I didn't realise that I was autistic until I had children of my own. My eldest, when he was about 14, he was really struggling with anxiety. He had a referral for having a lot of anxiety attacks at school. I took him to a child psychologist and she picked up that he was actually autistic. And when he was talking about what he thought of as being an anxiety attack, And this psychologist was saying, actually, that sounds like something more severe, more like an autistic meltdown. As the conversation went on, I'd got pennies dropping all over the place. And she basically said, he is very anxious, but the underlying cause of that is Asperger's syndrome, as she called it. She said uh, he's very likely to be on the autism spectrum. And at that same time that my son then started going through the diagnostic process, so did I. So I went through the adult diagnostic process through the National Health Service while he was going through the same thing through school. And we got diagnosed together. I was delighted then because I found that there are actually a lot of people like me, that I'm not that weird and different. That there's reasons that I struggle with things that my intellectual peers might take for granted, knowing the right thing to say and when to shut up and and various things. And some of the things that I really struggled with at university, just little things like joining the library and and the IT room. And there 
were so many things that I just didn't get why why it was such a struggle for me. And finally, there's a mitigation for that. I got quite involved in uh, actually autistic Twitter as well while this was all progressing and found relatable content from like-minded people. It made me feel like I'd found my tribe. So when I was diagnosed then, I told my manager straight away I've been diagnosed autistic. And she messaged me back saying congratulations. So she knew straight away that it's something that I'd be happy about, that I would feel validated about. So basically that's me. And now I talk about autism and other neurodivergent conditions in the workplace. So uh, my colleagues, there might be colleagues that have autistic traits but have not been diagnosed. And they hear relatable things and think, oh, it's okay to talk about my issues and my struggles in the workplace. And sometimes they are diagnosed and they hadn't been open about it. And the fact that I am then gives them the confidence to do likewise. So it's gradually affecting a bit of a culture change. Now, you've been a human resources analyst for about 20 years now. That's right. What types of responsibilities do you have in that position? So my first office job was in HR. I was an HR administrator and I really liked it because I was really interested in the people and the people data and organization structure. And then I saw advertised an HR systems analyst job and I thought, this is fantastic. I can be working in HR, but with the technical leanings that I'm spending more time working with systems and data, and that's what I still do. I got involved in a lot of equality and diversity initiatives as well over the last three years since my own autism diagnosis. The bulk of the time that I've been doing this role, it's been supporting people with the HR and payroll system, dealing with complicated queries, creating management reports and project management. So it really is a good discipline for me. And then for autistic and neurodivergent folks that might you have an interest in working in HR, what suggestions do you have for them? The first thing is I would uh, not listen to internalized ableism and negative self-talk. So I used to think you couldn't work in HR unless you were neurotypical because when I knew less about autism than I do now, I thought that HR people were predominantly neurotypical. They'd all got high emotional quotient as they call it and that they were really big on soft skills and empathy and that if you're autistic you're not those things and what I've learned over the years is that actually there's quite a lot of neurodivergent people in HR whether they're diagnosed or not and also the empathy thing is nonsense and that autistic people are generally very good at picking up on human emotions and knowing how people feel and think. And yes, we don't necessarily always say the right thing if we come across blunt, but that is a learned behaviour and it does not stop us from working in HR. If it's something we're passionate about, then if we've got the passion in the people data and the way that HR works, we can be really, really successful in that kind of role. Now, I'm interested in HR due to diversity and inclusion and making sure companies are able to hire and retain 
the best candidates regardless of you know neurodiversity, race, gender, or sexual orientation. So the first step in the recruitment is the recruitment process. Are there some common mistakes that you think HR and companies make with this process? Sure, definitely. I mean, the, the slant I tend to put on it rather than saying, you're getting this wrong, you're getting this wrong, <laughs> is some advice about how to be more inclusive. So, But the very first thing that you need to understand is why. There's, it, there's no point talking to recruitment teams about how to be inclusive unless they understand the advantages. So you've really got to grasp the concept that a diverse organisation, whether it be cognitively diverse or racially, whether it's people from different social backgrounds, if you have an organisation where people do not think the same and don't have the same ideas, then it will give you a competitive advantage. So once a company understands that, then... Sure, you can do things like remove language that discriminates against certain groups of people from job descriptions. Things like, you must be an excellent communicator at all levels. That should not be in there unless that's actually the case. I mean, a lot of jobs, it might say that in the job description or the person spec because there's this conception, this preconception that that is what you have to put. But if you're only going to be communicating with people at a certain level, not right up to the top, then it shouldn't be in there. It should basically be trying to find someone that's got aptitude for the job. And then when we get to interviews, an interview should find out what the candidate can do and not test their social skills. Unless their job is uh, chatting to people all day long, they don't need to be put in a position where you put on the spot and ask questions that you need to respond to quickly. And this is something that I've seen some companies do in the UK. It's a bit revolutionary. A few recruiters have gone, no, oh, I couldn't do that. But you can actually send out questions in advance. So if, for instance, you want to find out examples of where somebody's dealt with conflicting priorities or they've dealt with some maybe a customer that's had a complaint why not send out that question in advance and then your applicants then can have a good think about it they're not going to bullshit and bluster they will have time to think and to give you a genuine honest truthful answer as a recruiter it's not a good idea to assume that the people that apply for your jobs are going to lie. Because why would they? Why would you talk yourself into a job you can't do? Everybody wants to have time to give the correct answers so that it's a two-way process in interview. That candidate wants to know whether that job's right for them. And the recruiter wants to know whether the candidate's got the aptitude to the job. And actually giving them time to the process is the best way to get those answers. I mean, it's not traditionally where the questions are given ahead of time, but why are recruiters so against that? I mean, it just seems to make the most sense. It's kind of like there's been a long history of recruiters trying to trip people up and trick people and catch them out. And I think if we presume competence and presume honesty from the outset, that's a much better place to go into and then you can get the real answers. 
but it's not just about recruiting the right people, it's about retaining them as well. You might see companies that have got, on their websites, they've got wonderful outward-facing diversity statements about how inclusive they are and how much they value diversity. And then they will put into place uh, neurodiversity, positive recruitment, like we've just been talking about. And then the minute the candidate is no longer a candidate and their staff, that's when it all falls apart. And there's really only any point attracting those candidates. If you're willing to spend time getting the right reasonable adjustments in place, I think you call them accommodations in America. What basically it is, is allowing the member of staff to thrive as their authentic self and open about their support needs and their preferred ways of working so that the company can get the best out of them and they can be happy at work, stay long term because there's nobody as loyal as an autistic member of staff who is being well looked after and it's just a win-win all round. So some of my reasonable adjustments, they're all completely free and easy to implement but they've meant that I've been able to work, I've been in my current job for 16 years and I've got a really good attendance record and I've had promotions and, you know, it's because I'm able to be honest about my support needs and my challenges. You mentioned it a few minutes ago, but, it, you know, it's it's not easy to find employment, but it's much harder to maintain that employment once, once you do have that job. So... If someone wants to be an ally to support autistic colleagues, whether their colleague is open about their autism or not, what types of things may be helpful for them to do? Okay, so I've got a little bit of a spiel about this. So I think the main thing is to understand that each individual has unique strengths and challenges and not assume that we're all the same. So we've all got specific accessibility needs and support needs. And by we all, I mean all humans, not just autistic stuff. It can be unhelpful to stereotype people based on their neurological condition. We should ask rather than making assumptions. For example, I've had managers say to me, I've got an autistic member of staff. Does that mean I should teams call them? And my answer to that would be, please go away and ask that member of staff because we're all individuals. <laughs> I can say my personal experience. I'm happy to pick up a call on Teams or Zoom, but I need to know in advance. If somebody just picks up the phone to me, I don't always communicate as well. And the same applies to people popping by my desk. Uh, I'm not worried about video calls, but I do know a lot of neurodivergent people are. Some of them struggle with the eye contact. And it sounds funny because I'm just looking at my phone or I'm looking at a laptop. Yeah, eye contact can be quite quite distracting. I do know some people that turn their cameras off or they look away from their laptop. Basically, don't expect neurotypical standards when communicating with autistic stuff or otherwise neurodivergent stuff. I think that it's really important to understand that autistic stuff can need extra time to switch from one task to another. So the biggest thing that makes me feel really overwhelmed at work, which is really avoidable, if I stop working on a big piece of work, a spreadsheet or something, and I'm asked to drop that and quickly look at this and then drop that and quickly look at that, I get really overwhelmed. So I do explain the 
my manager and anybody else that's putting those demands on me, the way that my brain works, that I've got like tendrils that get really sucked into the spreadsheet and I've got to wrench them all out then to look at this other quick thing and then put them back in. And for the same reason, we struggle if we have scattered meetings uh, throughout the day. So if I need to be in several meetings, that they are one after another and they're all done by lunchtime. And then I can spend the afternoon with my head stuck in a spreadsheet. I know that a lot of people like to take a comfort break or make a cup of coffee or something between meetings. Not everyone's the same. But to me, if I have half hour gaps between meetings, I can't do anything in that time because I'm too busy task switching. So talk to the person that you're dealing with about when to schedule meetings. Understand that if we do that a lot, a lot of task switching and dealing with conflicting priorities and demands, that we can have a meltdown. And it's really good, particularly for line managers, it's really good if you can recognise the signs of a meltdown so that you can help the member of staff to de-escalate before it gets out of hand. I sometimes need to go for a little walk around the block or go make a coffee or, if it's really bad, go and disappear into the toilets for 20 minutes. If that's what I need to do to be able to then carry on with my day without things getting out of control, then that's what I need. And I think that is actually one of the reasons that autistic people struggle to be retained when their companies don't understand that. So it can end up snowballing into quite a catastrophic meltdown and it's so easily avoidable just getting to know the individual and their triggers and the signs that they exhibit when they're going into a meltdown. Sometimes we need uh, specific instructions broken down into manageable chunks. So I would rather have an email with a few bullets if there's a complicated piece of work I need to do rather than talk about it in a phone call. Being accommodating to people with sensory issues, so allowing headphones, earphones, sunglasses, that kind of thing, it doesn't mean we're rude. Those are just some of the things that we can use to help with our sensory issues. Avoiding meetings in noisy areas with people talking over each other, being supportive when we get overwhelmed, and challenging expectations about social behaviours. So this is one of the first things. After my diagnosis, I went to my local team meeting and I said to my teammates, I am autistic. I now know this. And you guys might have been wondering why I don't remember the names of your husbands and wives and kids and pets and where you've been on holiday and things like that. I don't say, did you have a nice week in Menorca or whatever? Because I just, I don't remember those kind of details and I don't, do well with small talk and it doesn't mean that I don't care it's just not what's at the forefront of my mind and so they really need to challenge their expectations of social behaviors because I'm not rude and I do care and that's just the kind of person I am uh, if someone had a big problem though and they wanted to talk about some crisis in their personal life or wanted to talk to me about mine I could have a really deep conversation and I'm absolutely happy with that that's my comfort zone Understand that autistic people can be passionate about their highly focused interests. Sometimes those are work-related. Like my interest in diversity and inclusion, that's a hobby, but I have it in a workplace as well. If I'm in a meeting where it gets onto my hobby horse, I could interrupt people, I could dominate the meeting. 
it, there is no point dropping subtle hints that I need to be quiet and let somebody else have a say. No point nudging me with an elbow or something. I really need clear communication. If somebody wanted me to be quiet and let someone else have their say, they need to not give me a subtle hint, but tell me directly, Charlie, you've had a lot to say about this, your passion is great, but now can we hear from this person? And I think that can be the same of a lot of autistic and ADHD people as well. Some, though, some can get very overwhelmed in meetings and become situationally mute. And a good leader and a good facilitator will make sure that those people still have a voice, even if they're not comfortable speaking and would rather type something into the chat. If they're not comfortable speaking up in a face-to-face meeting and they'd rather send an email afterwards, basically give everybody a voice. There isn't any point having a culture of diversity and inclusion if you've got lots of people that can't ever have a say. And understanding the unique strengths that we autistic people can bring to the workplace. Coming back to the why, you've got to understand the why before the how really happens. If people appreciate that we can have skills that are really valued in the workplace, for instance, I'm really methodical and systematic. I'm a problem solver. I do logical, analytical thinking, but also creative solutions as well. And I can look at processes and see where there's a duplication of effort and suggest that we do things differently. So that's the kind of thing that I can bring to my HR systems analyst role. And if people understand that, then they're less likely to think, why does Charlie need to work from home? Why does Charlie need to keep going for a quick break? And things like that. And yeah, basically appreciate everybody's unique contribution and their unique support needs. So I've interviewed a lot of people here on Autism Stories and you know something that I'm passionate about is running. So whenever I hear one of the people that I get to talk to is also a runner, I have to talk about it. <laughs> so what's been your relationship and history with running? Okay, I love running. At school, I never did any exercise at all. (laughs) I would have been the kid that tried to get out of physical education. When I was in my late 20s, I was going through a period of quite a lot of work-related stress and anxiety. This is before I knew I was autistic. So as far as I was concerned, it was just common or garden anxiety. And my husband, my first husband, had uh, got into running previously when he was depressed. So he convinced me to have a go at it, saying it would be good for your mental health. So I ran around the block with him at his pace and then thought, oh, I enjoyed that. I'm going to go further. I lived right by the river at that time. I lived in Newcastle-upon-Tyne, which is a really beautiful part of England. I ran along the river as far as I could go until I was out of breath took a breather and then ran back and I carried on and I was doing that regularly. Eventually I found that I could run about five or six miles so I started entering races and now it's really it's a really big part of my life. I'm a run leader for my local village running group so it's not like an athletic club it's really informal just a group of people that enjoy running in the countryside So I might set a nice countryside route and we'll go out for a run once a week. I'll make sure everyone's okay. 
it's really inclusive. I look after the newer, slower runners or the faster runners, and I'm quite often running between two groups. Or I just go for a really long country run with a friend and chat and talk about our husbands and our kids and our work. And Yeah, it's, I just love it. I think it's really good for autistic people in particular because it can be sociable, but it doesn't have to be. And there's no eyeballing each other over a coffee. It's, it can be uh, little and often as well. So if I run with a friend, I might chat for five minutes and then be quiet for 10 minutes. And that's completely fine. And everyone treats that as normal. Well, no, um, no eye contact is needed. Yeah. <laughs> Generally, just like a side eye conversation, I'd call it. And yeah, and it's not a steady state stream of reciprocal conversation. It can be one person going on a rant about something while the other just listens. Or we could just be running alongside in companionable silence. And it's not an awkward silence if it's running. And I think there's a sensory stim as well with the left, right, left, right, putting one foot in front of the other with the changing scenery and the bird song and all the sights and sounds. So it's a visual and kinetic stim. Now, I know you have a, a nice following on social media. So if there's someone listening that, you know, beyond this interview that wants to kind of connect with you, um, how can they do so on social media? Okay, so I can be found on Facebook and Twitter and LinkedIn under Awesome Charlie. So that's Awesome uh, with the AU for Autistic. And on LinkedIn, I talk a lot about business-related neurodiversity and LGBT inclusion. On Facebook, it's far broader neurodiversity. And on Twitter, it's more, it tends to be more humorous. So at the moment, I've got I hate Christmas, anti-Christmas thing going on all through Advent about how overwhelming all the Christmas is for autistic people. And, but I keep my humour to Twitter and my professional stuff to LinkedIn. Well, well I, I've followed you a little bit on Twitter, and you definitely have some um, amusing posts there that I've, I've quite enjoyed. <laughs> Well, well, Charlie, I really appreciate your time. Um, thanks so much for making um, time for me today and um, talking to me a little bit about HR and employment. You're welcome. If you think of anything else you want to ask, I'm happy to do a follow-up as well. Thanks so much to Charlie for the conversation. To learn more about Charlie, check out the link in the podcast description of this episode. It's important for me to interview people like Charlie because so often with Autism Personal Coach, people are reaching out to us for support through coaching in finding and maintaining employment. If you're looking for help with any aspect of employment, you can book a free call with me today to learn how Autism Personal Coach can help you. A link for the free call can be found in the podcast description of this episode. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories, and if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. On the next episode of Autism Stories, we will discuss communication regulation partners. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then.